Hey, this is Rob Rufus. I'm the author of Die Young With Me, which is now out in paperback. This is Kat Gwynn. I'm the author of Ten Mile Radius, Reframing Life on the Path Through Cancer, coming out in September on Rare Bird Books. I'm excited to see your book. I've never seen a, a book about cancer done quite that way. It, it looks really cool. Is it like almost like photos and essays about the photos or about your experience? You know, it's so funny. It, it is, well, it's a memoir because it's, it's about me and how I brought my story to the photographs. But I think that one of the things I learned so much about cancer, and I'm sure you understand this completely, is that we bring our personal stories to whatever, you know, intense situation that comes our way. And um, it, you know, I didn't start out when I started making the photos. I didn't start out thinking that this would be a book. It was really just something to do to keep me in the present moment. And really? it was sort of an active, yeah. And, um, and so when it over time became clear that this could be a book, then I had to think of, well, how could I turn this into a book more than just a, you know, collection of photographs, it obviously needed to have a story. So, um, that's, that's what happened. And then, you know, obviously there's some quotes in it that felt really appropriate to the story and made it, you know, more universal so that other people could bring their stories to my story. Yeah. And I, and I think that's really cool. Um, I think, uh, one of the only plus sides to going through something jarring like that is if it jars you awake to the, um, futility of existence and makes you like hyper aware of trying to be in the present moment in some respect, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, um, I don't know if you picked up on this, but I've been a, a long time meditation practitioner, um, probably close to 20 years. And so, um, I don't know if you, are you aware of a Buddhist group called the Dharma punks? Yeah, I have. I read that um, book, actually, the Against the Stream. It was really right. cool. Yeah, well, Noah is, is my teacher and my dear friend. And I'd been sitting with Noah for well over 10 years when I got diagnosed. And I remember I got this news, and it was, you know, completely the most unsettling thing in the world especially since my mom had died of the same disease and my godmother died of breast cancer. And just months before I was diagnosed, one of my close friends died of the same cancer I had. So it was, it, it took my breath away to take, to, you know, to say the least. So I remember going to meditation that night and I, after the meditation, we walked outside and I went over to Noah and I told him what was going on. And he just looked at me and he said so clearly, and I'll never forget it. He said, Kat, you've been sitting on a meditation cushion for many years. You know what you need to do. And what he meant was that I had to go sit in the dark and find a way to be comfortable with it, you know? And so it was seriously when him saying that was probably one of the seminal moments of this journey. You know, it was like he started me off and in my book where 
I go, I talk about the portal and going down, you know, it, that really was describing what he was saying to me that you, you've got to go down, you know, down like Alice did down, just go down. <laughs> that's so, that's so trivia and, and amazing. I mean, like what an amazing tool to have through that. You know, oh, I mean, you know, what's interesting, it, when I read your book, the thing that I felt like my heart ached for you in so many ways, I loved how vulnerable you allowed yourself to be in the book and explaining the angst of a teenager and having, you were given something that as a child, you know, a young, uh, young man, how do you know how to emotionally and spiritually deal with that? You're not, you're not trained for that. And that was the one saving grace I felt was all those years of practicing meditation, all those years of therapy. Finally, it was like, okay, let's put this to practice. Is this going to work? And if there was a thing that I would tell the world, be prepared because you never know what's going to hit you. And I had the preparation to be with this, including if it means dying. You know, yeah. um, I don't want to, I don't want to die, but it's like, sometimes that's what happens. Yeah. And, I mean, and that's incredible. I mean, and it took me honestly, yeah. Like even after my battles with cancer, like going through that without any kind of mental or philosophical or spiritual, um, anchor, weighed on me well into my mid and late 20s you know what I mean like it was just my head was so completely fucked <laughs> it was really oh, you know absolutely. writing the writing that book really is the only thing that kind of helped me put that into the context of existence and see my my life now in its greater scope and really square a lot of that for me and put me at peace with it like you're saying like I feel more like a, a teenager now than I did have in 20 years you know <laughs> that's great <laughs> that's so cool but you know it's it, it was I feel the same way like I just was you know getting done with treatment and I think that what people also don't understand when you go through a really serious cancer and you get done with the treatment part of it people think, okay, you're done. It's like, no, you're not yeah. because the recovery is so intense. I'm still recovering things and there's things that never will be recovered, you know? And, um, but writing the book for me, I had to not only relive the cancer and the recovery I was literally in the middle of, I had to relive my mother's death of cancer. And it was, it gutted me. It really did. But it was, Actually, now that I'm on the other side of it, it's the most brilliant thing I could have ever done because I feel like I got to rework my grief and really be with it. Because when you're in the middle of the cancer part of it, it's almost like you've got to pull something up in your spirit that it can't take everything in because it would just kill you, you know? For sure. So later when you can actually sit with your feelings and relive them and understand them and process them, it's so great. And I have a feeling that a lot of people who go through something as serious as you and I do just want their life to be back and to forget it and put it away. 
But, you know, when we do those things, when we put away those shadows of our life, they have a nasty way of coming back and biting us. <laughs> oh, so, I know. <laughs> you know. Trust me. That's going to happen to me. Yeah. And I don't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's like I work, um, you know, uh, I teach mindful awareness at, at, you know, addiction recovery centers and like Refuge Recovery, Noah's, Noah's Center and another place called the Control Center. And so I'm, you know, dealing with addicts a lot and, and I get it. You know, I remember one of the addicts said to me, well, what do you know? Have you ever been a heroin addict? And I said, no. I said, but we both have a disease that could kill us at any time. And both of us have a shadow that follows us around for a long time, like the rest of our lives. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. she, you know, and she kind of looked at me and went, oh, and it, <laughs> I think she got it. <laughs> you know, so it's, um, it's a lot, but I don't think, you know, my life is completely changed having gone through cancer. I mean, I'm sure that you feel the same way. I, I don't think I'll look at the world or myself the same way ever again. Yeah, I, I I I can't imagine. I mean, but I do know for me, the age made it, it, it took a while because I, I was so young. I definitely did want to jump back into life and I jumped yeah. right in from... And and it was like, the way I kind of dealt with it was, I went from, you know, basically living in the hospital to just jumping on tour with punk rock bands and playing in basements and dingy punk clubs for like, you know, seven, eight, nine years. And it was like, I, uh, I, I kind of completely disconnected from that part of my life. You know, I was in a different city every day. So I was with different people every day and I didn't have to talk to anybody about that. You know, I, I didn't have to mm-hmm. share that part of my life with them. And um, like you said, it, it it comes back to bite you in the ass when you when you go like, why am I so hyper miserable and like pulling out every self-destructive cliche I can fucking come up with? <laughs> like, this is not yeah. this makes no sense. It was really coming in terms with that, that really made me more hypervigilant of where I'm at and in the scope of the broader scope of things, you know? And when did you, because I, I saw like on your bio that you work with make a wish and, and live strong and different cancer organizations. When did you start doing that kind of work? I started doing that probably in my mid twenties because my mom, my mom got really involved with those organizations and I started, Mm -hmm. so I started trying to get involved, but even at the time I still was very like hesitant to think about any of, any of the things I'd went through, let alone talk about them, you know? Right. Um, So working with those organizations was, I don't know. I, I, I wish I had a better word for it, but like it, it's almost like when you go through cancer there's it's like anything else like there's either people that it's like going to war right like there's people that join the military and they're war veterans and some people have that as part of their lives but want to 
also focus on different aspects of their lives. And to some people, that is the one defining thing about their life. And it's the thing that, like, they're the people in the grocery store with the with the Korean vet hat on and the Korean vet t-shirt on. And that's mm-hmm. that's their entire that that's their entire personality. That's that's their defining feature. And and it was hard for me at the time working with those organizations and meeting people like that because they're just twenty four hours a day inundated in their cancer journey and I was trying to do the opposite. You know, I I, <laughs> I didn't want to sit around and think about that. I didn't want to I, I just was not interested in that, you know. Um, so it was, it was a weird thing. I mean, uh, those organizations and those, those people, like they're so necessary to progress the cause and progress, not only advocacy, but, you know, pushing for funding for cures for those kinds of diseases. But at the same time, it it was really hard for me to, to inundate myself with, with like, cancer people i guess i would call them like i would go to conferences and stuff and i'd just feel like i this is is exhausting me well it's it's almost like it's the difference between being drafted or choosing to join the military (laughs) well dude i know and i'm sure i'm sure um when your book comes out You'll get a you'll get a nice little taste of, of those experiences yourself. So I'm interested to see what you think. Well, you know, it's interesting. I've had I've shown some of the photos, and I've I've gone. You know, I've, I've spoken about the work in a you know to an audience, and it was interesting because at the end, more people came, more women came to tell me about their bad mammogram or their, you know, mother who went through breast cancer or whatever, more than even the photos. And, and I realized, Oh my God, this is, I'm going to have to be a witness, you know, to everybody's experience. It's, and it's heavy, man. Like I, I know, I mean, I get, you know, not only people coming to like my shows and things like that, but I, I get emails almost every day and and they're always that's what they're always about they're always incredibly heavy and they're always people wanting to share share these stories that you know you're just like oh man like this is so you just feel such empathy for these people but and but it also if you can remind yourself like your book especially with you know your interest it's like i wish there was a book like mine when i was a teenager and sick the same way if there was a book like yours when you got diagnosed i'm sure it would have it would have meant the world to you you know It, it, it and part of it was i feel like there was books about cancer and I didn't really necessarily pick them up because some of them I'd seen in the past, a friend gave me a book. I don't remember the name of it. And I read it and it was so filled with platitudes. It was like yeah. the author could, she couldn't go there. And <laughs> it didn't help me because this comes back to my own, you know, teenagehood. I, I, I'm sure they told you I was a punk rock kid too. And I felt like I wanted to be with this experience completely 
And I wanted to be a punk about the whole thing. I wanted to own it and be with it and face it. And I didn't need to hear someone say, God doesn't give you anything that you can't handle. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Oh, I know. And and honestly, I was the exact same way. Like when I was sick and, and beyond that, I would, you know, I remember being in the bookstore and well before I wrote at all and just seeing these like bad hair day, how pasta and church camp got me through my breast cancer diagnosis or whatever, whatever the fuck, you know? (laughs) And I would just be like, Oh my God, like, fuck you. Fuck this book. I I don't know. And, and that's really not fair to the author and the tons of people that, that bought it because maybe that helped them. But I was just, I was so angry at, like, I don't want to see the PG-13 version of a, of a horror movie, you know, like, right. this is terrible. I don't want to hear the, you don't, you can't dance around, you can't have a book about something horrible, but yet dance around the reality of it. Well, or I you can, that, I guess, and they sell well, a shitload no, of can. books, but still. <laughs> but it's even like, it's even like when people come up and they would, Everyone would, not everyone, but a lot of people would tell me about, oh, my friend's sister who beat breast cancer. And it was always with this, like, if they told me about somebody beating a nasty cancer, that somehow or another it would wash off on me. And I, and I, you know, and, and people would say, oh, you know, breast cancer, that, that's, that's not, that's not a big deal. I mean, everyone beats that. And I would just look at them and go, my mom didn't, you know, and they would just, stop the conversation because you know i don't think that people understand that breast cancer can and is a really tough cancer and i ended up having triple negative which is a really aggressive rare form of it that just it, it just goes through your body they call it pancreatic breast cancer it moves really? through so fast oh my God. and you know it, it it's like I never take any day for granted. And even though like right now I have no evidence of disease and my doctors would say my prognosis is good and I feel pretty good about it. I don't take any day for granted and say, Oh, I've beat this. And you know, I just think that for whatever reason I'm taking good care and luck is on my side and I'm doing what I can and I'm going to appreciate today, you know? Yeah. And I I, I do. And and do you still now, are you still getting tested regularly with scans yeah. and blood work? Yeah, I still get blood work. And I, you know, like like you said, I mean, I, I still have tons of side effects from the treatments and things like that. And more, you know, I the interesting thing, I guess that would be the word for it about um, childhood and teenage cancer. For somebody like me is is I was kind of the first generation of young people with cancer that whose survival rates were actually going up. I mean, before before that, the long term survival rate was like 20 percent or something just overall. So so they don't really have a they don't really have a lot of information about the long term effects like, say, if you, like me, if you got cancer when you were 17, how that affects you 
well into your middle age and you know because mm-hmm. they just didn't have anybody that, that lived that long so right. yeah it's, it's but it's trippy to think about and and so i'm kind of with you like uh, i'm kind of like well it's not something i dwell on but i do but yeah. i do feel like um you know I'm kind of in the bonus round of my life and I'm doing whatever the fuck I want to do, <laughs> you know, and I'm not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm trying to like doing the Timothy Leary approach and dropping out of the, the games that I don't want to play. Well, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think that my life has become much more clear and what I'm willing to accept or not be a part of because you know, I'm already middle-aged and, you know, I know that my time is finite and it, it really matters and that I make these days count. And even if I live another 30, 40 years, which would be great, I want to live them if I'm well, you know. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's the other thing, too, when you go through something this big, like, that was part, part of it, I was going to say, reading your book, you seemed like all of your chemo you were just annihilated with, with nausea and puking and did it, did it ever get better? No, (laughs) no, (laughs) which is so, which is so fucked up. No. And and every time I would be like, all right, you know, and you know, you know what I'm saying? Like you go in and you're kind of trying to mentally, get in the headspace of like, I know what this is going to be like. I know this is going to suck. And then I'd last about whatever, <laughs> 10 minutes. And then be like, <laughs> I want to fucking die. <laughs> like, can what? I just, can you give me enough drugs to let me sleep through this? Wow. And it, because I thought one of the reasons why I never, you're going to not believe this, but I never threw up. I got nauseous a lot but they were pumping me with steroids and all kinds of things. And maybe because we did different types of chemo. I mean, I felt like I wanted to die. I can't say that I didn't, but um, I didn't ever throw up, but I was also doing CBD oil. That helped a really? lot with the nausea. Yeah. See, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have anything like that. And I, and I, and I bet it did. I mean, um, but it is interesting uh, the way different, types of chemotherapy affect people in different ways. I mean, even, even so much as like, I would see people who's like their hair might not fall out or it might people that I came up with that all got a certain type of chemo drug, like their hair grew back curly or something weird, like weird, weird shit. And so that doesn't surprise me. You know, I have a great chemo story because I did, I think I did 20 rounds of chemo and I did some of the, one of the worst ones is this one, adriamycin and cytoxin, and they call it the red devil. And there was like, you lose your hair, like no one's business. And I was, I was bald for almost a year and I, my hospital is Cedars. And one day I went in for some kind of, I think I went in for a heparin flush on my port and I was leaving and I was fine. And I decided that I was going to stop at this local Ross to look at sheets because I needed sheets. So that <laughs> day, I just happened to be, you're going to love this. I happened to be wearing like Levi's combat boots 
and my bad brained t-shirt <laughs> and, I go, and I go in and I think it's got, Oh, I think I was wearing like a bandana, but sort of like Vato, like, you know, East LA. Yeah. Me. And so <laughs> I go in, I go in to look at these sheets and I'm just, all I want is a nice pair of sheets. So I'm looking through and this woman comes walking up to me and she says, excuse me. And I look at her and she goes, I wanted to give you my card because I wanted to let you know that you might want to come to my shop. And I said, okay. And I'm thinking maybe she's talking about, maybe she has sheets at her shop. And she said, well, I've got a lot of beautiful hats and scarves. And I, now I know what she's getting at. And she said, you know, for women like you. And I look her straight <laughs> in the eye and I go, no, I, I don't know. What, what do you mean women like me? And she gets really uncomfortable. And she said, Oh, oh, don't make me say it. And I said, say what? And she goes, you know. And I said, no, I don't know. And she, and then she looks down and whispers, cancer ladies. And I go, <laughs> I looked at her and I said, cancer ladies? She said, well, you're bald. And I said, I'm not a cancer lady. I play bass in a punk band. And I was walked away. <laughs> <laughs> And I did play bass in a punk band when I was a teenager. Uh, but, <laughs> but that's so awesome. <laughs> I was just like, fuck you, man. If you're going to come up and you're going to talk to me about being bald, like be, be straight up. Say, what's up? You know, would you be interested? Or, or offer me a scarf if you're so concerned about it. But um, Yeah, no, was, don't try to fucking sell me your shitty scarves. Right, exactly. But, you know, I'm, a, I'm a cancer lady. <laughs> God, it that's was amazing. Just like it was, it. But I was so grateful when I walked away. I was just like, "Fuck you." Um, <laughs> that would have been, yeah. I, 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 I never get tired of being able to like be dicks to people. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I guess I don't know how else to put it, but, but yeah, that would have made my year. <laughs> It was That's so amazing. great. It was so great. <laughs> uh, I, well, I, I had the I had the opposite thing happen to me. Like when I was a kid, I uh, I would sit out on my front porch with my friends and my brother, and <laughs> and I I didn't have any hair, and I was sitting out there too, and like I had like camo shorts on and like a whatever punk t-shirt, and so then the police pull up and. One of my neighbors had called the police and said there was a skinhead ring working out of this house. <laughs> and I'm like 17. Like You're like, yeah, right. right. Yeah. Oh, my and God. Man, people are, people are exhausting. I never, and I have no idea who did it, even still. That is so fucked up. But it, it and, and there was, I knew plenty of punk kids that had shaved heads that weren't like skinheads well yeah i know i know i've always known i've always known people that have shaved heads i I, it's really weird i mean i think maybe the fact that i'm just seriously fucking pale adds to the the white supremacist aspect i I don't know (laughs) Uh, oh my god but but it is sick it is it, it is sick, and I think that people, um, you know, I, I after a while, like some people, 
well, women wear wigs or they wear scarves. And I'd wear like skull caps and beanies because my head would get cold. And yeah. sometimes I'd wear scarves. I tried a wig like three times and it felt like this really stupid hair hat. And I didn't like it. And then I just freestyled it. And, you know, I have to say that showing up in the world bald, it, I would I would definitely get some looks, you know, and but I didn't have that cancery look, which I in your book, I saw that you said that you got the steroid puff. Um, yeah, and I didn't get that. Thank God, um, because a lot, some people didn't even know. They just assumed it was a fashion statement that I was bald. Yeah. But in a weird way, I think because I was bald for so long and I got, I didn't like it. Of course I wanted my hair back, but I got, I was, I was willing to own it. And I think that that was helpful in a way when I would meet people or I'd see people on the street because I think they could sense that I was okay with it. You know, I was an open book. If you wanted to talk to me about it, talk to me about it, but don't, don't skirt around it. You know? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, it takes a while to realize that like, if you're confident, then you can get away with any crazy bullshit you want to wear, uh, being bald included. Exactly. So, exactly. You know, being sick and, and like that included. I mean, because people are just curious in a bad way, you know, they're not curious. Like they actually want to learn about you and what you're going through. They're curious about like, they just they just want to know what they want to know and then get the fuck out of my face. <laughs> and uh, so I, yeah. I believe I believe it like like just just owning it. You could probably avoid a lot of that because you don't give a fuck. So so why well, should they? Right. And that again became I mean, I remember literally coming to that conclusion like, fuck, when I was a kid, because I was a punk rock kid, this wouldn't even be an issue being bald, you know, and that was, it's one of those things where, you know, I look at these, these elements in my life and what was seminal and being a punk rock kid, I think was, has been some of the best foundation of my entire life, you know, and I know that people would think, Oh my God, that's weird. This kid who, you know, basically dropped out of high school. I played in bands. I did drugs you know, um, and somehow or another, I, you know, overcame all that, but I never really, I didn't want to ever overcome the ethos of being a punker, you know, um, it, 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 it served me well. And, um, do you remember the, the band, the adolescents? Oh yeah, of course. Okay. I grew up with the adolescents and social distortion and, and, um, agent orange. Um, and I was, I was one of the kids at the black hole. And, um, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So, you know, it was, I didn't know at the time because I was a kid, you know, I think I met my friend, Robert omelet. We played, we had, we were in a band called the omelets and, um, I met Robert and he was good friends with Mike Ness and Frank and Rick Agnew. And so that's why I met everybody and played in different bands. And I would, you know, go up to LA when I was, cause I was living in Fullerton as a teenager. And then I would come up to LA to see bands. And, um, it was like everything in my home life was fucked and my 
parents were splitting up and no one gave a shit what I did. But punk, it, it gave me a place to belong. And it was like a place to put my frustration, a place to, you know, feel alive. And as I was saying, I didn't realize at the time that I was really a part of punk history. As yeah, I mean, really. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's like I saw the germs play right before uh, Darby died. Maybe two weeks before that's Darby a, died. That's unreal. I was like 15 years old, you know, and my yeah. parents didn't even know where I was. I would hang out with friends who had a car and we'd get up to L.A. and we'd have just enough money to get into a show. And then after the show was done, we would go to this Denny's, you know, and which was at Gower Gulch. And we would, you know, have enough money to get a grand slam breakfast and we would drink like 17 cups of coffee and drive <laughs> home at five in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and I swear, no, that day it was Red Cross opened and it was X and the Germs. Still one of the best shows I've ever seen. That's that's unreal. That's, it was that's so fucking great. crazy. But seriously, I, I, I totally understand. Like, <laughs> I mean, even just just subconsciously knowing from the for the rest of your life that you can question shit. That you can question mm-hmm. how people tell you how you're supposed to feel or react or et cetera. I mean, just even having that, even it becomes second nature after a while, hopefully. <laughs> but I'm glad well, it did for you because the same for me. Absolutely. I mean, that was part of the book that I loved the most. And I felt so, well, I felt connected to you in a lot of your books. <laughs> Um, I felt connected certainly by the punk rock. I mean, you and your brother, the joy that you had from your band and discovering music, it was like reliving my, when I was that age and getting to learn all these new bands and, you know, and it was even coming off of, you know, people like Bowie and Lou Reed and Nicky Pop and that was sort of more established, but it was, that was as important to me as going, you know, to see 999 or, you know, any of the bands that we used to see. And um, it was like, it meant, that was everything to me. Each band that I would see and playing. And um, so I really felt that in your book. It, it, it touched a beautiful part of me that I love. And um, obviously the cancer stuff I completely related to. <laughs> but, um, it, it, you know, but it's, what I loved was that I knew, and maybe you didn't know it at the time, but I was like, this is what's going to save him, is his commitment to something that is music, you know? And um, it was great. And and it's great that you guys, like, and your brother, how is your brother? I like your brother a lot. He's he's good. He's, um, he's actually... Uh... Smoking weed, working on some punk demos right now <laughs> in the other room. <laughs> Tell him, give him so, a thumbs up for me, right on, dude. That's so. That's well. Hey, good, good for him. That's great. So, are you guys still? You guys are still playing together, right? Yeah, we play in two bands together, and. um you know, we work on a bunch of stuff together. I mean, we we hang out pretty much every day still. So, so yeah, it's 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 great. 
No, I think the part also in the, your book that really touched me was at the end when it was like he couldn't really talk to you about what you were going through. And then when he brought the songs out that he had been working on and they were about this experience, that it literally made me cry. <laughs> Sorry. It did. No, 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 no. I meant that. And no, I, it's cool. I, I think that it, it touched my heart so much that it showed me that we find a way to express ourselves, you know, and sometimes maybe we aren't good at communicating, but we can communicate in another way. And he was able yeah. to, which was incredible. You and know? It's, it's wild, especially, you know, when you're young, when you look back and really realize that and realize, you know, and, and that's a lot of the, when I have people reach out to me, a lot of times they're older and, you know, re- relate to my book because they have cancer or because they grew up listening to punk rock. You know, they're usually my age or older. But when I have kids or young people that hit me up, it just means so much to me because uh, after revisiting all that, you really kind of think about how just incredibly fucking hard it is for a kid to put his put himself out there emotionally like that and um, oh yeah and yeah so Absolutely. so revisiting that I, I was really like i i thought a lot about that too um did you did you have you gone and talked to kids at like at at hospitals and i've never I, i've never done that i have done um like like here in town in nashville one of the high schools did a reading like their their teacher was doing a memoir unit and they read my book and then and I'd met her and came in and and like talked with them which was hilarious and and weird but it's cool I mean and, and it's cool to see like the unit really was the amazing thing to me because like the idea behind it was they read my memoir and then would talk about it with me and then they would write a chapter of their own of their own memoir and I would help oh, them. Oh, cool. As, yeah, and and it was just a really awesome thing to be a part of. But the the way kids took to talking about themselves and their just crazy fucking stories was was a trip, you know. Um, oh yeah. But it was a cool to be a part of. But but uh, but you know, talking it was like two-thirds cool to be a part of there was a there was like the normal kid questions like like what drugs does this motherfucker take <laughs> like uh what no no none and you're like shit you're on drugs right now <laughs> and <I'm> like okay, <laughs> next ne- next question <laughs> yes you're uh, right but next question <laughs> next question please we're not going to talk yeah. about that <laughs> But, wow! But uh, yeah, man, it, it, I'm really interested. So, are you gonna do any um, any any events around your book release? Are you thinking about that already? Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, I think that I do want to actually go into different hospitals and talk to people. I've I've talked. Um, I've done a couple presentations at Cedars, my hospital. And, um, and it's gone over really, really well. And I think part of it is because, 
you know, people are, well, they're hungry to hear a story of inspiration, but I think that they really dig it because I'm honest in my story. My, I don't pull any punches. And, um, and I think that they're really intrigued with what I did, my process. And people have said, I would do that. And it's something that I, I would love to teach more in sort of cancer clinic uh, is to teach people how to do their own 10 mile radius. Um, yeah. And uh, the other thing is one of my clients, um, because I'm a photographer and one of my clients for the past, I don't know, maybe six or seven years is flashes of hope and flashes of hope. I go into children's cancer clinics or wards and I photograph kids dying. Some of them don't die. I shouldn't say they all die. I should be, right, let me clarify but, that. Yeah, I understand. But, I understand. But, but I, I live very close to Children's Hospital, which is uh, the one that Jimmy Fallon was talking about recently because his, his newborn son had to go there and get his heart operated on. And, yeah. Um, I will go over there sometimes and, and photograph the kids. And one of them, they called me up and they were straight up and they said, there's a girl and she had, uh, I think, I believe it was leukemia. And, and they said, she's going to die probably by the end of the week. And tomorrow is her 18th birthday and her family is coming. Would you be willing to photograph that? And I said, yeah. And I went over and, and, um, spent the afternoon and they literally wheeled her out, you know, almost in a bubble because she had no immune system and she did. She died a couple days later and that was heavy. That was so heavy. And the wild thing was I ended up getting diagnosed with cancer about three weeks later. And it was, so, it was so intense. And then flashes called me up. I was just about finishing my treatment and they asked if I could come and photograph a picnic that they were having. And I said, yeah, yeah, I can do that. And I, you know, explained that I had been going through cancer and they're like, oh, and I said, well, I'm bald. And they went, okay. And so I show up and I'm photographing this little three-year-old girl. She's so cute. And she was bald too. And she looked up at me and she goes, hey, you're bald. And I said, yeah, I am. <laughs> she goes, <laughs> she just I'm bald too. I said, I know you are. And she goes, but I got <laughs> cancer. And I said, yeah, me too. I had cancer. And she said, are you going to be okay? And I said, yeah, I think I'm going to be okay. And she said, you know, I'm going to be okay too. And her mother's standing there just crying. But oh my so, fucking God. I can't even imagine. <laughs> it was That's so, so beautiful. meaningful. It was so beautiful for me. And the kids, it was interesting they were totally chill with me being like bald and another fellow cancer person. Some of the parents were a little bit like, whoa, you know, but then I think when they saw that connection, it was so unifying, you know, I think that that's we so all go awesome. through. God, you know, what a heavy story. I know it, it. So I have, I have gone in and, and, and sat there, I, you know, you're like in the belly of the beast. And especially when you're on a children's cancer ward, because you can't, and you were older in that, but the kids that are like, you know, two years old, they're like, what the fuck? You know, I know it, but but I can't imagine, I I can't, I can't imagine how 
during you know having just done that project with the 18 year old so that's that scene is fresh in your mind when you get that diagnosis and then having that happen with the little kid later it's like it's like such extremes you know god that's the kind of stuff that again everything like it was almost like my universe changed and all these things showed up and I don't know if there's God or not, but I think there's something bigger than us, you know, and those are the moments that, while maybe they were, you know, really emotionally raw. They were so worth it. And I knew that there's something bigger than us that I was supposed to meet those girls. You know, I was supposed to be, I was supposed to be there and help this family out and leave them with photographs of, of a reminder that their child did make it to be 18. You know, and, um, but still, you know, how do you you ever survive that? You know, knowing that your child died when she was 18. I mean, you know, you know, like. I I know. And and it's, I, I, especially now, you know, that I'm an adult. I, and I think about that stuff and I think back about it, but I, I I don't even have to think back about it because it happens every fucking day. You know, it's going on all around us always. And, and yeah, to me that is the hardest part to go. There's not a culpable deniability and understanding the gravity of the situation once you're an adult. Like when you're a kid, even, even as old as I was, even a teenager, you still can go, fuck it. The band's still going to get a kick-ass record deal (laughs) and not think about (laughs) everything, you know, and I don't know how I would, I, I don't know how I would get through something like that now. Like it, it would be harder for me to go through now or go through like what you went through than to go through it as a kid because you can separate yourself from it a lot right. easier. You know, you can trick yourself into you. You don't know enough to go. This is, this is bad. This is worse well, than fucking bad. Well, that was, I think there's, there's a line in my book where I talked about when I, I found the lump and my, my overwhelming thought was, this is not going to end well. And my friend said to me, they're like, well, maybe it's not cancer. You need to be positive. And I'm like, do you really think that cancer gives a shit if I'm positive or not? Like, <laughs> And I, I think it was because I had already had such an experience watching these people I loved die, including my mother, you know, that I was like, so I sort of feel like, wow, I lucked out on that one. You know, knock wood, I'm here today. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. And, and yes, I agree. Like, the, it's, I, be, it's, I believe in the power of, I'm a uh, optimistic pessimist you know what i mean like, i believe i believe in the power of positivity only so far like i'm gonna bitch the whole way like i'll still do it i'll still do whatever i have to do in the end but i'm gonna make sure everybody knows i think it's fucking bullshit and it sucks so absolutely i said that i say this all the time it's not about being positive it's about being authentic and I think that, you know, there were days that I felt positive and I felt, you know, like I've got this one and, 
And there was other days that were so bad that I remember once my therapist, we did a phone session and she knows that throughout my life I've struggled with suicide and depression. You know, the thought of suicide. Yeah. And um, we were on the phone and I was, I was so, I was probably like in my eighth month of chemo. I was so beat up and we're talking and I'm really depressed and really I'm angry. I'm depressed. I want this to be done. And I'm just talking that way. And so she says to me, you're not thinking of anything. And I snapped at her and I said, what thinking of committing suicide. And she said, well, if you are, you can talk to me about it. I said, are you fucking kidding me? I've gone through this many months of chemo to go and then kill myself. Isn't the whole <laughs> idea to live? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just cost benefit at that point. <laughs> You're like, suicide <laughs> wouldn't even be worth it, dude. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to shortchange myself. No, like, <laughs> wait. At that point, I'm like, I'm in for the long haul, man. <laughs> <laughs> you do. But, I, 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 that's hilarious. I just, <laughs> but I totally like, understand that. <laughs> oh, it's like, because you are dying. I mean, it's like, it literally, this shit is killing you, you know? Um, but, and that is my biggest, you know, like, I still have PTSD around, like, anytime I go in to get, MRIs or my PET scans or any of that shit, I I yeah. still get kind of an- anxious about it. And I've had a couple of reoccurrent scares and um, it was just like, oh my God, oh fuck, I can't go through that again. I just, I can't do it, you know? And I don't know, I can't say what I would do if I reoccur because I don't think we really know. We, but I can tell you in that moment, just the thought of it scares the shit out of me. Yeah, uh, same. I, I know. And you're right. I mean, you don't know what you would do in any any kind of stressful situation. But something like that, it's just like, uh, nah. <laughs> like, nah. It, nah. No, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty intense. I mean, but it's, I don't know. I just, knock wood, today I'm okay. Um, yeah. But I wanted to ask you a question uh, to change the subject completely from that really, you know, happy conversation of, of reoccurrence <laughs> and cancer. Um, I noticed that you guys have a lot of tattoos and I wanted to find out who you've gotten some of your tattoos by. I don't know if you know this, but years ago, I directed a documentary feature on tattooing called Forever Yes, Art of the New Tattoo, and I did it with Ed Hardy. And um, I, I, I saw really, that. That's, and that's awesome. I, and I, I'm like, I bet you you've worked with some of the tattooers I've worked with. Um, a lot of the tattoo, a lot of my bigger tattoos I got when I was still a teenager living in West Virginia. So they were from no name meth addicts. In Nashville, um, there's this dude, um, Chris St. Clark, owns a shop here called Custom Thrills Tattoo that that's that's been doing pretty well lately. Like he was just on Ink Masters and and things like that. And um, I've got a lot of my tattoos the last decade or so from him or Adam that works there, and and some of the other artists. I mean, there's so many great artists moving here now. 
Um, mm-hmm. I got one of my tattoos from um, Elm Street Tattoo, which is uh, God. What is that dude's name with the mustache who used to date Kat Von D? That is on. He's one of oh. the host of Ink Masters. Oliver Oliver Pack. Uh, his shop. I got one of my tattoos there, and um, I got one. I recently got a tattoo it in Honolulu where the old Sailor Jerry shop was. <gasps> oh, and cool. I was I was stoked on that. Um, it got infected as fuck, but, but still, I was I was excited <laughs> to go there. It was cool. <laughs> they all did, all of our tattoos did. Me and my brother and his girlfriend went, and we all were like, "These tattoos look like complete shit." <laughs> they all got infected, <laughs> like. And the guy that did theirs was like talking about PizzaGate and stuff, and all these conspiracy theories, and uh, <laughs> it, it was concerning, but. That we went, we checked that off our little list, <laughs> and that's that's fine. That that I've I've had that doc I've been working on that documentary was awesome. It was it was really great. Um, I met Ed through some friends. I have a lot of friends. In fact, one of them tonight, Punk Rock Larry, I'm going to go to dinner with. He I had taken some pictures of him, and um, he. One of them, he has this, Larry has this massive tattoo on his back that says discipline. And he's got a huge mohawk and, and um, he played, well, he played in a lot of bands. One of them was discipline. One of the bands was Larry's hairdo. But anyway, I'd taken a great shot of Larry and it was in a gallery. And I think Ed saw, yeah, Ed saw it. And he contacted me and said, I'm working on this show about tattooing. And I got involved and then I presented him with the idea of like, I want to do a documentary on this and he got behind it. And, um, so I was really lucky. So I filmed most of it in LA and San Francisco. And, um, like I said, I, the tattooers I worked with them off the top of my head, like Jill Jordan and Freddie Corbin and Dan Higgs and Eddie Deutsch, um, Mark Mahoney, uh, God, Bob Roberts, Leo Zuletta. Are these guys even around now? I don't even know. But they were like, at the time, great tattooers. That's so cool. Yeah, now it's it's weird. In Nashville, at least. I mean, since tattooing tattooing and tattoos in general aren't, aren't kind of a torrid thing anymore. Like, they're not, they're much more acceptable in society. And I have all these mixed feelings about it because I, I was just like, once Justin Bieber has face tattoos, they're not fucking cool anymore. And I have this, <laughs> and, and, and I have this like story in my head that breaks my heart of this guy going into fucking prison in like 1989 and getting covered in fucking prison tattoos and face tattoos and shit. And he's the toughest guy in jail. And finally, in 2017, he gets out of jail, and he just wants a cup of coffee, and he goes in, and his barista has a fucking face tattoo, <laughs> and he's like, "Oh man, <laughs> I'm not even cool. I'm not even cool looking. I, it, that's all I had going on. Is I look looked interesting, and now I look like a fucking. I'm in New One Direction or whatever. I mean, One Direction or just a barista. It's yeah, true. yeah. It's like, <laughs> 
No, it's true because it's like I see tattoos are, they're like an accessory in a way, you know. And when I was, because I did the film in the early 90s, and they, tattoos were still, there still was something, there still was a wow factor about it. Yeah. Um, you know. And but there still I was like a, the, you're not going to get a job. You're not going to get it. You know, your your boyfriend's parents are going to fucking hate you. <laughs> you're not going to be right. able to get a good job. And it's not, it, 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 it's not like that anymore. No, are you I see people that are like straight people that have neck tattoos, which make me go, wow. That's, it's that's, amazing. That's pretty hardcore, you know. But it's um, almost like, it's almost like to me when when skateboarding you know and i guess the early 2000s when skateboarding became more acceptable and less of a more of a sport and less of a of, of a subculture like a lifestyle and i was like wait like the athletic kids at school aren't allowed to skate they're fucking gonna be great like we're terrible we're all unathletic and we suck but now we're like, <laughs> You know, now like this, the stars of the track team and shit are skating, doing nine hundreds and stuff, and we're like, man, god damn it! And that's how tattooing is for me now too. Like, there's all these because now being a tattoo artist isn't there's nothing it's there's nothing fringe about it. So anybody that maybe a talented artist that would normally never go into something that they had to be part of this subculture for is now and now it's mainstream there's uh, so many great tattoo artists and it's great for everybody else but you know fuck them because i don't have that much space left and i'm covered in bad well, tattoos so I'm like, well fuck you guys do you know there's there's two interesting things uh, ed hardy said in my film he was talking about how a lot of the people, the men and women that he taught to be, you know, was mentored into being tattooers, they immediately covered their bodies with tattoos. And he said that he hasn't completely covered his body with tattoos because he said clean skin is like money in the bank because yeah. he knew that, that other tattooers would be coming up that he'd want to get tattoos by them, which I thought was a good point. And, yeah. um, the, the other great story I remember from my film is if Freddie Corbin, if you don't know Freddie Corbin, you need to know him. He's up in Oakland. And I think his shop is Shiva tattoo, I think. But anyway, Freddie is an amazing tattooer. And um, his stuff is, he has a lot of religious stuff because he's Catholic. And um, his grandma Rose was just flipped out that, oh, Freddie, you have too many tattoos. And how can you make a living being a tattooer? And he shows her this roll of cash that he, yeah. that he made tattooing. And she was like, oh, that's not so bad. And you have a <laughs> lot of Jesuses on you. <laughs> so, I mean, but Freddie, I think, has made a really good life for himself as a tattooer. And yeah. it is, and he, you know, so you can do it. And it's, it's an incredible art form. But I do, I have seen a lot of shitty tattoos and I think some of the, what did they say that a third of the business they get are cover up? Really? I can believe uh -huh. that. Yeah. The, yeah. the genius thing to do would, would be to get into tattoo removal. So when all the baristas want to get real jobs or, and their parents finally make them go to grad school, then, um, you know, they'll, they'll get their face tattoos removed and shit. 
And then that's when you make real money. It's, but can they do that? I don't even know. I mean, they could laser yeah. dot, but you still, you'd have, it wouldn't be the same. God, I, I had a friend that got his throat tattoo lasered off. He's like 40 and just became a pilot. And so he had to get his throat tattoo removed. And the it looked like he got ran over by a lawnmower, you know? Like, I was like, never, <laughs> never, 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 never. I would I would get wholesale makeup and cover that shit every day before I did that. I know, because then you would look at that pilot and you think, God, was that from going down in the crash? This isn't good advertising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that's why you never see the pilots on the plane until afterwards. <laughs> Right. That is, that is always, scary there. Just like he always wears an ascot so we don't have to see it. Jeez. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, good for him, though, for becoming a pilot at 40. I think that's super cool. Um, yeah, it's a scary thought. I've never seen him drive without a fucking beer in his hand. So I'm, <laughs> I've never ridden with him. But <laughs> I, I won't even drive in a car with him. But I'm, I'm sure that's, I'm sure there's precautions around that. I'm wait, I'm waiting to see him on CNN one day. You know, like, but I actually, actually, his best friend that reminded me was covered in Jesus tattoos and Catholic imagery, and he was just the most negative person i've ever met in my life like and one one night we were out and he got in a fight and he was just like acting like a psycho and we were on the i was on the way to drop him off and i was like yeah man like for somebody with all those catholic tattoos you were the most negative least spiritually sound person i've ever met in my life and he goes they're supposed to be ironic. Jesus was an outsider. Look what happened to him. <laughs> I was like, wow. That's like, a good answer, I, I have to say. Yeah, because like, I know that's not true, but it's but it's a good enough answer that Alex, I have to accept it. You know? I like, like um, I hope to meet you next time I'm out there. Yeah, I, I really enjoy talking to you. I really enjoyed talking to you. And if I come to Nashville, I'll, I'll let you know. I mean, who knows where the book and everything will lead me. Oh, please do really. I, I can't wait to, I can't wait to read it. I think it's such a cool idea. I think it, it's, it's inspirational in a different way. You know I mean? It's not inspirational. Like if you do this then you'll beat cancer, it's inspirational. Like just, learn to accept and enjoy your existence while you have it one way or the other, you know? And I, I think that's a really unique message that most people don't get. I think it'll be really cool. Well, thanks. I, I think I will listen to what the world thinks, you know, I, I think <laughs> with, we'll see. I, I don't even know. I can't even speculate, but um, my instincts say that maybe it's, it's time for people to see that message. I, I agree. I, uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. Well, thank you, man. I, I, I really enjoyed your book too. And I'm actually going to pass it on tonight to punk rock Larry. Cause I think he's going to keep <laughs> reading it. Cool. Thanks. I definitely do. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's really good talking with you, Rob. Yeah, you too. This is Rob Rufus, uh, author of Die Young With Me, now out in paperback, um, so go dig it. Hey, this is Kat Gwynn. I'm the author of 10 Mile Radius. I hope you take a look.